If this is your first Sunday at Grace Bible Church, it may be disappointing to you to find out that I'm preaching on giving today. If you put something in the offering, you can get it back if you need to do that. We don't want our guests giving if you don't want to. But in actuality, what you'll find that we're going to talk about today is where you're going to spend eternity. Because what you do with your life and giving is part of that is an indicator of where your heart is, but we will get to that in a bit. Our goal in the past number of weeks has been to build a robust theology of giving. And it is a theological idea. We don't shrink away from that as if that's the one area of Christian growth and maturity that's nobody's business but ours. The scope of our entire lives is the Lord's business because we belong to him. We are slaves of Christ if we have come to faith in him. And everything in life is addressed in scripture. There's nothing that is left out. And so far, we've seen some reasons to give to the work of the Lord. We give because of God's ownership, that God owns everything already, so we're merely returning to him a portion of what is already his. We give because of God's ownership. We also give because of God's grace. The grace of God towards us is infinite, and therefore our little giving is a way to acknowledge his gift of salvation. We also give because of God's provision. God promised in 2 Corinthians 9 to take care of us, to give us everything we need, not only for our own lives, but to give as well. It's not that we have our money and God's money. It's all God's money. And so he provides for us. And then last week we looked at giving because of God's church, that the local church supporting the men who feed your hungry souls with the word of God, this is to be the first priority of any believer. There's a partnership between the shepherds and the sheep that we looked at last week that's a beautiful arrangement of of being together in the body and financial sharing is part of that arrangement. Now, our reason for building this theology and taking time to do this, and we're doing this in the Sunday school hour as well, is to inform our hearts. In some of your cases, it may be to remind your hearts of this theology, and maybe in a couple of your cases, it is to change your heart in regard to giving. And the specific goal for Grace Bible Church is to find another facility which will be more suitable, more financially responsible, since this is a leased facility that we enjoy now. And so a number of weeks ago, we initiated our joyful generosity uh, giving campaign, whereby we will see what the Lord will choose to do through us, first in our hearts, and then through us financially over the next three years or so. And at that point, we can make a decision as to where to proceed from there. Now, I know that for some of you, and I understand this, for some of you, this sort of campaign causes some discomfort, especially if it's unfamiliar to you or if you've seen uh, some particularly wicked, quote-unquote, ministries doing similar things. And so we, we understand that and we get that. That's why we're taking time to build just a biblical theology, what the Bible says about this. But in the spirit of being good stewards with the resources that God has given to Grace Bible Church, let me give you just a little bit of perspective. Four years ago, we initiated what we called the More Than a Building campaign because it was more than a building and it's more than a campaign. This was intended primarily to kind of just put our finger up in the wind and see what, what you as a church were ready and willing to do because of the fact that we don't own our current facility. That was what we would call a fairly soft campaign. It was kind of a, let's just see what happens. 
And in your generosity over the past four years, you have given $200,000. Incredible generosity. And I want you to keep that number in your mind, though. Now, to put that in perspective, we're now trying to focus and concentrate our efforts on reaching as close to $800,000 to a $1 million in just three years. That's the number that experts in the real estate, the building, and the banking industries have told us that that is just the reality of what we need in the bank to even begin making serious efforts forward. We totally understand that feels a little uncomfortable. That's a lot of money in a short period of time. I've never seen that amount of money sitting in one place. Uh, Somebody joked with me that we should have a fill the baptistry uh, thing. I don't know if we want to do that or not. And, And we totally understand that this may feel a little uncomfortable. That's a lot of money in a short period of time. But let me give you some perspective in the spirit of being wise. And one of the main reasons that the leadership has unanimously moved forward with joyful generosity At our current rate of saving $200,000 every four years, it'll take 16 more years to save a million dollars. But there's two problems with that. Because of inflation, number one, in 16 years, a million dollars won't be worth a million dollars anymore. And second, while we're continuing to slowly save a million dollars, we will have paid $2 million in rent. And so financially, it's just not wise. And that's, by the way, assuming that rent doesn't go up for the next 16 years. Anybody here have your same house payment? Maybe a couple of you do. But at some point, wisdom dictates that we just get to work, right? That we just put our noses to the grindstone and make an extremely concerted effort. This is in the same spirit, by the way, as the aggressive campaign that the Apostle Paul undertook on behalf of the Jerusalem church as recorded in 2 Corinthians 2, 8, and 9. This was a little bit more than a one-year campaign. We're taking longer than that. And frankly, the Apostle Paul did things we're not even comfortable doing. I mean, he said, you know, this church over here has given a lot. You're not giving anything. You wouldn't want them to think you're stupid, would you? I mean, this is in the Bible. But we're not going to do that because I'm not Paul and this is not an inspired text. But one of the really amazing things about a giving campaign toward a facility is almost for all of your Christian life, you will faithfully give to things that are intangible. You're giving to to the things even we heard in these videos are intangible things, spiritual growth, maturity, Christ-likeness. We can't put our hands on that. But the building campaign has the rare added excitement and joy of a tangible result. And isn't that, that's just a little bit more exciting in some ways. So we've been building this theology of giving. And to a believer who is genuine, giving is a joy because of the understanding that we have of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So we've looked at those four reasons to give. I'd like to offer a fifth reason today. Today, we give because of God's reward. We give because of God's reward. And the primary text we'll examine, just kind of as our home base this morning, will be Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Feel free to turn there with me. Now, one of the insidious things about false doctrine is that it takes truths from Scripture and often just slightly massages them into error to become falsehood. And this has the effect now of sometimes making us shy completely away from the actual truth itself. For example, when you hear a preacher say, let's put some treasure in heaven, we all just kind of groan and say, boy, another televangelist is born. We shrink back. We want to recite the doctrines of grace while looking at pictures of Martin Luther and John Calvin just to make ourselves feel better. But where did the idea of putting treasure in heaven come from? 
Well, it came from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just a concept. It wasn't just a discussion. It wasn't a theological debate. The idea of laying up treasure in heaven is a command. It is something that you are to do if you love Christ. So we have here Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon about the characteristics of kingdom citizens. And he's emphasizing in this passage that the kingdom hasn't yet come to earth. The kingdom is not here. Our our total mind and heart and investment should not be on earthly things, but on heavenly things from whence the kingdom will eventually come to earth. We often speak of being heavenly minded, that is of setting our hearts, our affections, our minds on Christ's future kingdom. And then, of course, more immediately on our future heavenly home after our own deaths. Many, many wonderful scriptures help us with this. Colossians 3 speaks of, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Philippians 3.20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews was speaking of saints in the Old Testament and he talked about their heavenly mindedness in Hebrews chapter 11. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And the Apostle Paul himself, he gives this wonderful example to us in Philippians 3.14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we have all kinds of scriptures that help us put our mind, our, our heart, the seat of what's most important to us in the right place. Because where your heart is, that tells you the state of your soul. And in the text we're going to examine this morning, Jesus is going to give a very simple test of the state of your soul. Where is your treasure? Where is that that is most important to you? So we could frame this soul test in the form of two simple questions. Question number one, is your treasure on earth? Question number two, or is your treasure in heaven? Very simple. Is your treasure on earth or is your treasure in heaven? Let's examine the first question. Is your treasure on earth? What Jesus is going to do is he's going to use the tangible, the things you can put your hands on, your treasure, your financial resources to measure the intangible, the state of your heart, where your soul is. Matthew 6, 19. He exhorts us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So he gives first a negative injunction. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because we have to define treasure. What does that mean? Well, he defines it in terms of how temporary it is, how unprotectable it is, that there's no security system on earth that can actually 100% guarantee the safety of your stuff. And so he gives some descriptions here where moth can destroy. Well, this is speaking of moths that like to eat wool and eat clothing. And in ancient times, wool clothing was considered to be uh, upper level. It was, it was high level clothing. And what some wealthy people would actually do is weave fibers of gold into their clothing. And that would serve two purposes. First of all, you could hide it more easily that way. And secondly, you could kind of walk around town and kind of put your lapel out there and say, I'm doing pretty well. See these, these woven threads of gold. But you could go to your closet and find a little pile of nothing 
on the floor of your closet because the moths got in there. And he says also where rust can destroy. Now the word rust is a best guess translation. It's a Greek word that just means a consuming. It's the idea of something being eaten. In fact, the word translated rust can also be translated worm, something that consumes. So it could mean the corrosion which attacks uh, metallic objects and considered, considering the facts that things like metal tools and metal weapons were considered a form of wealth, that certainly is a possibility. But it can also speak of rodents getting into your storehouses, into the granaries and, and the, the silos that held your wealth, that held the harvest, that held your food, that held your wealth. And so those can be gotten to. And then he says where thieves break in and steal. In other words, if the bugs don't get you and the rats don't get you, then your next door thief is going to get you. In fact, it was a common practice to take your, some of your treasure and put it in a jar and go bury it out in a field somewhere just in case your house was broken into. And in fact, where it says where thieves break in and steal, it literally is a word that means dig, to dig in. Most of the houses had clay walls. So if you're gone for a week and your door's locked, somebody can just come literally dig through your wall. Material possessions, what Jesus is saying here, they may appear to be substantial, they may, be, may appear to be lasting, but they are subject to loss in any number of ways. Just ask the men who jumped out of windows at the beginning of the Great Depression in the early 20th century. All that they thought they had was lost. And so we're not to set our hearts on those things. We, we hold them loosely. We enjoy them, but we hold them loosely. So what did Jesus mean by the prohibition, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth? Well, obviously, he's not saying to avoid going about the daily work that you have with care and diligence. He's not saying business owners don't try to make a profit. He's not saying don't save for the future. He's not saying that at all. We take all of Scripture together. The book of Proverbs tells us it's wise to save for the future. And he's certainly not saying to feel guilty about enjoying good things on earth. And when you're eating a vanilla ice cream cone, you're not supposed to, supposed to say, oh, I feel so guilty about this. This is earthly treasure. Vanilla ice cream is heavenly treasure, personally. But it doesn't mean to feel guilty about it. In fact, 1 Timothy 6 says that, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so he does give us good things. What he's saying is that to hoard and to enjoy only for ourselves and to have a heart attitude of dependence on all that we have is sinful and it reveals the idolatrous state of your heart. I guess the question is, when is enough enough? When is your heart consumed with these things to the neglect of greater, more eternal things? Proverbs 23.4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. In fact, God had to teach Israel this lesson. And one of the ways he taught them this lesson was to give them the Sabbath law. This was a day in which they were not to be about the business of earning money, of growing their fortune, but they were to trust the Lord instead. And the New Testament has a parallel lesson in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we are to be disciplined enough to say, I'm going to work hard to a point. And after that, I need to trust the Lord. He'll never leave me. As a matter of fact, the wealthiest believer in the world and the poorest believer in the world have something in common. 
Job 121, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The richer may be tempted, as they often are, to look down on the poorer, but we all cross the line evenly penniless, every one of us. Sure, some of you might leave more wealth for your children so that they too can cross the line penniless, but you'll never take it with you. So this is just the negative injunction, what to stop doing. But that isn't uh, enough to, to change how you think. A good parent knows that you can't just tell a small child to stop doing something. You have to give a replacement action in its place. You can't just say, stop putting the cereal up your nose. You have to say, instead, put it in the bowl and eat it. And so you give the negative first and the positive. Because if all Jesus said was, do not lay up treasures on earth, He'd be giving us the impression that material possessions in and of themselves are wicked. And that's not the case. The Bible never says that. It does not say that that the, the money is wicked. It's the love of money which is wicked. So obviously he's not saying that. He's talking about how you use your material possessions and how it reflects what's important to you. So he gives a a second injunction. This is a a positive one. Question one of this heart test, this soul test, is your treasure on earth? But question two, or is your treasure in heaven? Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. No moth, no rust, no thief can get to it. It's impervious to all outside risk. We might say it's perfectly guarded by the FDIC, the Federal Divine Insurance Corporation. Nobody's going to get to it. The location of our treasure indicates the location of our heart, the seat of our loyalties, the real home that we cherish. Now, under this question of is your treasure in heaven, we could ask three sub-questions about that test. Is your treasure in heaven? The first sub-question is, what is our treasure in heaven? What is that exactly? Well, certainly our greatest treasure, of course, is Christ himself. He's all satisfying. He's all consuming. He's everything we need. But in his mercies, God is also building heavenly wealth for you. Now, time doesn't allow me to do this justice, but I want to just hit a few highlights for us. What is heavenly treasure? Are you going to get to heaven and be handed a little account book that says you have X million dollars in the bank? I don't think so. But what is this treasure? Well, generally speaking, heavenly reward is pictured in the New Testament with the metaphor, the picture of crowns. It's a symbol of royalty, and it's right in line with God's plan for mankind to be the vice regents of the earth, as we've been studying on Sunday evenings. The specific word for crown or wreath, it speaks of a crown given to a runner, to the victor of a race, after they had finished that race. And so there's a debate as to whether all these these crowns apply equally to all believers, and to a certain degree, some of them must apply to all. But there also seems to be some categories that these apply to specifically, let me just suggest a few. The first we might call the crown imperishable. The crown imperishable. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
so the special circumstance seems to be here a special reward for those who ran a purposeful and a disciplined race in their relationship, their walk with the Lord. Another one we might call the crown of boasting. The crown of boasting. First Thessalonians 2.19, the Apostle Paul again, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? In other words, we proclaim the gospel to you. You came to faith in Christ, and now you're our crown. You're our, our boast. So this seems to be speaking specifically of the work of evangelism. For those who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Christ on the street, in their workplace, to your children, to your spouse, to your neighbors, that seems to be the reward. Here's the crown of boasting. We have another one we could call the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here's the key. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It seems to be for those who have been very heavenly minded and who have lived like it. And then we have the crown of life. The crown of life comes from two different texts. James 1 verse 12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We have another similar text in Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the crown of life seems to reference specifically those who have suffered greatly for their faith. And we have one more we might call the crown of glory. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, speaking to the leaders of the church, that the elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That excites me. That seems to be for the faithful under shepherds of the church. Now, I know that those are frustratingly vague, but can you imagine if somebody came up to you and said, I hold in my hand a receipt for a deposit that has been made into an account with your name on it. There's a lot of money in there. I'm just not going to tell you right now what it is. Okay, we have to live with that. We have to understand that, that we can't possibly grasp the scope of these rewards. But there's a couple of type of rewards that are actually more specific in Scripture, just two of them. The first one we'll call responsibilities. Responsibilities in the parable of the minas, in Luke 19, that's different than the parable of the talents. Two different stories. Jesus tells a story of a nobleman who went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then would return. Who is that? Obviously, he's speaking of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lines up 10 of his servants and he gives each of them a mina. A mina was basically three months wages, a little bit of money. And he says, use this for kingdom purposes. So the faithful servants, some of them multiplied those resources on behalf of the nobleman and they received a reward. And you know what the reward was? It was cities for them to rule over. And this fits exactly with the reward given to the saints in Revelation 22, verse 5, that the saints of God will, quote, reign forever and ever. 
And that fits with what we've been studying on Sunday nights all the way back in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The central directive, the, the major purpose of the kingdom is that God created mankind to be his representative rulers on earth. And so that fits right in with this idea of reward of responsibility. But there's one other specific type of reward. We'll just call this return. Return of what? The return of your earthly losses. The return of your earthly losses. Many of you have shared stories with me of how family and friends have rejected you because of your faith in Christ. Well, what happens because of that? Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, we don't know what that means precisely, except that whatever you lost for the sake of Christ will be repaid at a ridiculous rate of return. He says a hundredfold because probably to the ancient mind, that's about all the multiplication they could do. It's probably much more than that. And that's really just a a little sample of what Scripture says. There's so much more. Your heavenly inheritance, a new heaven, a new earth, the wealth of the nations described in Revelation 21, new Jerusalem, uh, so many other things we could talk about. I I think the, the simplest way to summarize this is that heavenly reward and treasure is bigger and better and bolder than you can ever imagine. It's impenetrable. It is imperishable. So the first sub-question, what is our treasure in heaven? We, we don't have an exact answer. I just know it's good. Now, the second sub-question, when do you get it? When do you get it? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. I want to spend a moment in this text with you. Over to your right, 1 Corinthians 3. The false teacher, Kenneth Copeland, he's famous for teaching that you can make withdrawals on your heavenly treasure here on earth. And because of that, every Christian should be wealthy. But in fact, what he's doing is characterizing exactly what Jesus said not to do. So when do you get it? 1 Corinthians 3 tells us when. 1 Corinthians 3, look with me at verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So the good deeds and the sacrifices of the saints are characterized metaphorically as building materials. And these are building materials built on the foundation of Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. There's no works at all. And now these post-salvation works, these post-salvation deeds are characterized as two kinds of building materials, solid building materials and flammable building materials. Any work which survives the solid building materials, meaning those things done for the cause of Christ in obedience to his word with a humble and a right heart, they will result in reward. 
Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because there's heavenly reward. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because there's heavenly reward. Believing children, submit to your parents. Why? Because there's heavenly reward. Employees, submit to your employers. Why? Because there's heavenly reward. Employers, be kind to your employees because there's heavenly reward. Obey the elders of the church. Obey the laws of the land. All of these things that the New Testament tells us to do in love for Christ builds reward. It survives. But this reward is not a foregone conclusion. Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, what's the context of these works, by the way? Is it just random things that you decide to do? I read on a, on a popular, uh, supposedly Christian financial website this week that you can do good works anywhere to anyone, anytime, and it all builds up heavenly reward. And as I suspected, he didn't cite a single Bible verse to prove this. Well, what's the context of doing these things? The context is the corporate mission and team effort of the church of Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Look at the next two verses. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, if you've ever heard those two verses preached um, in the context of you really should have uh, fewer carbs and more protein because you're God's temple, that's a wrong application of this text for a very simple reason. Somebody didn't check their grammar. The pronouns you And these two verses are all plural. The group of you, the church, all of you in this room. Your building materials on the foundation of Christ are performed, they're given, they're sacrificed in the context of the group effort of the church of Jesus Christ. We're not to be lone wolf believers who think that we're going to do a mighty work of God independently of our relationship to the local church. It's not going to happen. Now, when do you get this reward? Verse 13 says, on the day, meaning the end of the age. The day in the New Testament can have a positive connotation of the day when reward is given. In all likelihood, this is speaking of sometime after the rapture and resurrection event, which is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, and before the return of Christ. Why would it be before the return of Christ? Well, when Christ returns, part of the rewards have come in the form of responsibilities in the new kingdom. So those will need to have been handed out. Romans 14.10, the Apostle Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, for the believer in Christ, that's not a judgment unto punishment. That's a judgment of reward. And in Paul's example here, he's saying, if you're embittered towards your brother, remember, you're, you're, just, you're just burning reward. That's all you're doing. So what is the reward? It's the multivaried richness of what it means to be a child of God and to receive from him in, in the coming kingdom. When do you get it? On the day. And how do you get it? How do you get it? Well, specific to financial giving, 1 Timothy 6 tells us this. Turn with me again to the right. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is giving instructions to Timothy. Timothy is the apostolic representative at the church of Ephesus. He's giving him instructions on what to teach the church. Specifically, right here at the end of the chapter, we'll be looking at verses 17 and following. 
he's telling them what to say to the rich in the congregation. Now, I've hung around a lot of pastors, and we kind of have some, some bad experiences with this because when a particularly wealthy person wants to give a million dollars to the building campaign and also wants to be unfaithful to his wife, there comes a, there comes a problem and a choice because what the church ought to do is discipline that man for his unfaithfulness. But what often happens is, is the idea of preference and favor is given instead. Well, what Paul tells Timothy is, here's what to say to them. Here's how to teach them. 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What does that sound like? That sounds like do not lay up treasures on earth, doesn't it? Paul phrases it, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant. This is sometimes expressed in the church as believing that someone should have special privileges. Instead, verse 18, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. They're to give according to their means with generosity and readiness. And what's the result? See if this sounds familiar. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. In other words, heavenly treasure so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, that by their generosity, by their loose hold on their own wealth, they are proving that their heart is right before the Lord. So how do you get this reward specific to financial giving? In the context of the church, it tells us here, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. And the specific application here is to those with more means. But the general application, it does apply to everyone because generosity doesn't have to do with amount. It has to do with with your heart and what you believe about that which you give. The level of your generosity is simply measured by what you have available and what you choose to make available to give. Now, let's kind of tie this up here. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 6, because what Jesus is going to do is now summarize the two questions we've examined. The two questions we've examined, is your treasure on earth or is your treasure in heaven? Now he summarizes in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he's getting personal. In verses 19 and 20, he uses plural pronouns. All of you don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. All of you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we're pretty comfortable in the group context when somebody points a finger and it's to everybody, right? We can kind of avoid that. We can dodge a little bit. But in verse 21, he switches over to singular pronouns and he goes, you. Now, all of a sudden, Russell's like uncomfortable because Jesus is now saying, you, 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 you. Do not lay up treasures in, in, on earth, but lay them up in heaven. Why? Because that tells me where your heart is. That is the heart test. Now, we have an important interpretive question before us here. Is Jesus saying, give in order to change your heart? Or is he saying, give because your heart is changed? Well, we would have to say the latter. You give because your heart is changed. Look at the bigger picture of his lesson. Look with me at verse 24. 
He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Listen, that is not a lesson about how Christians are to deal with money. That is a lesson about being a Christian in the first place. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I serve money. Then you're not a Christian. God does not accept idolaters. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No idolater is accepted. If you refuse to part with even a little of your cash for the sake of the gospel ministry, then you likely don't belong to Christ. It's really that simple. Now, I want to drive that point home deeply enough that you never forget it. In fact, I want this to leave a little bit of a mark. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. Spiritual heart change in salvation that's not accompanied by the change in the way you use your money, the way you use your possessions, that's questionable at best and probably not genuine. And we have absolute proof in Nehemiah 8. When the remnant of Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, they started turning once again to the Lord. A revival of faith broke out. This was a wonderful time in the history of a humbled Israel. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a people who have been without the word of God for decades and decades. They have known what it is to reject God and to feel his hand of discipline. In verse 7, various teachers of the scriptures begin helping the people understand the law. And do you see what they're doing? They're lifting their hands to heaven. They're bowing their heads. They're on the ground. And it seems to be this continual action of just being overjoyed at at receiving God's word. In verse 8, this is what the teachers did. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Why did they have to give the sense? There's two things that were happening here. First of all, these teachers were going paragraph by paragraph. That's what the Hebrew word for clearly literally means. Paragraph by paragraph. Why were they having to go, why were they having to go so slowly? Because this was a generation that probably no longer understood Hebrew. And so now they had to translate it. They had to make the sense. And the people responded by being stunned at how they hadn't obeyed the Lord. They didn't know God's word and they didn't obey. Look with me at verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They had a heart of repentance. They were turning to the Lord in humility. But the leaders encouraged them. They, They said, In repentance, you now have right relationship with God. So this particular day, this first day where we gather together, we're to celebrate. And verses 10 through 12 speak of of feasting and celebration because of the Lord and the grace given to them. But after the celebration, now having been convicted of sin, they set aside a special day of repentance. 
and they planned for it. This was a day to officially, as a nation, turn back to the God of the Bible. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. When was the last time you stood up and publicly confessed your sins for three hours? That's called revival. And that's what's happening here. They have new hearts. They're humble. They're worshipful. They're ready to be obedient. And the rest of chapter 9 is a long confession of sin, acknowledging that the Lord has disciplined them because they turned away from him. Look all the way with me at the end of chapter 9 in verse 36. And this is their conclusion here. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. And then they did something that was absolutely shocking. They renewed their loyalty to the Lord and they put it in writing. Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And the first 27 verses of chapter 10 list all the men who signed this covenant. The next several verses begin to outline the stipulations of this covenant. Basically, it's a summary of the law that God had already given them. And guess what else changes as a result of their repentance, their humility, and their heart change how they use their money. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, appointing according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit for of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. That's a commitment. That's not, well, the Lord will lead me as the offering plate is coming close. That's a commitment in specific terms. Their changed heart meant that their resources are now getting diverted. And what were they supporting? Not only were they supporting the theocratic, God-ruled government of Israel, the house of our God, but they were 
supporting the service of worship. In fact, in verse 39, there's a list of all who would be supported financially. You have the priests who minister. You have all the singers. Can you imagine a paid full-time choir? What do you do for a living? I sing to the Lord. Wow. And the administrative staff called the gatekeepers. Why? Because the end of verse 39 says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Their focus was on worship because they had a changed heart and the location of their treasure now changed. That's our heart test. Is your treasure on earth or is your treasure in heaven? Jesus preached this simple test and I have a shocker for you. He also took the test. He took the test and he passed with flying colors. After his baptism, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. There was never a doubt that Jesus would pass this test. It would, in fact, reveal and prove his divine nature. Satan himself was the instrument of this test, this temptation. And in the third of three temptations, Matthew 4 says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What was Satan doing? He was trying to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross. And if he avoids the cross, then he avoids the means by which the wrath of God is paid on your behalf and mine, and we're doomed. In other words, Satan said to Jesus, Just just rule the world now. Take all the wealth now. Or, to put it another way, have earthly treasure now. But Jesus kept his eye on the prize. He kept his eye on the mission given to him by his father. He was obedient. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before him? What was the, what was the prize? What was the reward? Philippians 2 says, tells us, that God has highly exalted him because of his death, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to receive that reward, the writer of Hebrews says he endured the cross. Endured is a word that means he remained, he stayed, he didn't escape He told Peter that if he wanted to, he could have called 72,000 angels from heaven to carry him away. And he despised the shame. Now, what does that mean? It's an odd phrase to us in English. It means to scorn something or to have contempt towards something. But I think the best semantic domain, the, the best illustration or definition of that word, despising, it can mean to think something small, to think of it as little, It's the idea of Jesus receiving and enduring the humiliation and the shame of the cross by thinking little of it. This is exactly the idea expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. One scholar wrote, Instead of earthly joy which was within his grasp, Jesus endured the cross and thus obtained greater joy in heaven. Jesus, the maker of all things, 
refused the opportunity to immediately receive all that already belonged to him. Jesus, the maker of all trees, was crucified on a cross made from a tree that he made. Jesus, the maker of all people, had nails driven into his wrists and into his feet by people that he made. That is monumental self-discipline. That is monumental sacrifice. So anytime we're tempted to think that I'm giving too much for the sake of heavenly reward, it's never too much because we can never outgive Christ. And he lived his heavenly priorities and he has received a kingdom as a result. And you have received kingdom citizenship and the status of fellow heir with Christ because he was faithful unto death. I think we can put something in the offering plate, don't you? I think we can. And in all likelihood, none of us will be asked to give what so many other believers have given. Under the cruel reign of Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, on October 16, 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake in Oxford, England, after sharing a cell in the Tower of London for over a year. They had been arrested for treason, and what that meant under Bloody Mary was that they were both preachers who believed and preached the doctrines of grace in opposition to the Catholic religion. Strong tradition says that as the flames were kindled, Latimer, the older, told Ridley, who was younger, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Thirty-seven months later, on November 15, 1558, in Canterbury, in England, five believers in Christ who had been arrested for believing the genuine gospel contrary to the Catholic religion, they would become the final martyrs under the horrible rule of Bloody Mary. In fact, Mary would die and face the Lord just two days later. These five believers, their names are John Cornerford, Christopher Brown, John Hurst, Alice Snoth, and Catherine Knight, who was an old woman, they were to be burned alive. Alice Snoth was asked if she wanted to see any of her family, and she said, I want to see my father and my grandfather because they don't know Christ. And while she was tied to the stake with the wood piled around her and the oil piled on to kindle the fire, she proclaimed the gospel to her own father and to her own grandfather. And as the flames came up, all the witnesses heard Alice Snoth crying out, I am a Christian woman and I will follow Christ. And joining them in those same years of the English Reformation, all those executed by Bloody Mary, John Rogers burnt to death, Lawrence Saunders burnt to death, John Hooper burnt to death, Rowland Taylor, Rollins White, Thomas Tompkins, Thomas Coston, William Hunter, Stephen Knight, William Piggott, William Dingle, John Lawrence, Robert Farrar, George Marsh, William Flower, John Cardmaker, John Warren, Thomas Hawks, Thomas Watts, John Ardeley, John Simpson, Nicholas Chamberlain, William Banford, Thomas Orman, John Bradford, John Leaf, John Bland, countless others, burnt, 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 burnt. And you know they knew where their treasure was, and I don't think any of them had a problem putting a buck in the offering. I don't think the offering was a big deal to them. Probably they emptied their pockets on the way to the stake anyway. They have become kings and queens in the kingdom of heaven with vast treasure, vast reward. The opportunity to lose your life for Christ may never be presented to you, but the opportunity to gain reward for yourself in heaven by your generous sacrificial giving 
that the cause of the gospel is always there. And in fact, it is the command of Christ, lay up treasure in heaven. We support the cause of the gospel by giving to the general fund of the church to be used wisely for the regular operation of the church and primarily the fund, the preached word of God. We support the cause of the gospel by doing all in our power to proclaim Christ to everyone around us, which in this case will be accompanied by a facility in which to proclaim his glorious name. That, by the way, has been part of the historic Christian church since right after the time of the apostles. And on March 10th, as you know, we're going to bring our initial sacrificial gift out of what the Lord has already given to us. And we bring our commitment cards on which by faith and with wisdom, we will commit to the Lord's work for the next three years. By the way, if you can't find your commitment card on March 3rd, we'll give you another one just in case. You're not getting out of it that easily. Listen, there's urgent gospel work to be done. There will be a last person on earth to be saved, but that hasn't happened yet. And we join the Apostle Paul in proclaiming from 1 Corinthians 16, a wide door for effective service has been opened to us. And it is our duty to do that work, to do that service. And God will richly reward if we are faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. Oh, the salvation that we've received in in Jesus is so rich indeed. To be called joint heirs with Christ is something we can't even grasp. That you take us who formerly were God-haters, and you transformed us by the work of the Holy Spirit to be those who love the Lord, who love him even unto death, who love him sacrificially, and who will be kings and queens in the kingdom made to glorify you and to give us pleasure and delight in serving you. There aren't words to say thank you for that. We have nothing that you need. We have nothing that you must have. But we do have our worship to offer to you and we would worship you, Lord, in the obedience of our lives as husbands and wives and children, employers, employees, to be godly in our families, in our homes, in our community, to be godly in the church as church members, as church leaders, and to use everything that we have because it all comes from you for the sake of Christ and that would include our resources, Lord, because it's all yours. It's all yours. All we have is Christ. And he is enough. He is all we need. Lord, I pray for every person here that you would give them the confidence to know that they will have exactly the nickels, dimes, or quarters that they need until their last meal on this earth. And then you will bring them home that nobody here will ever go without because we are your children. But Lord, our bigger prayer even is for those who may not know Christ. May this be the day where they change sides, where they become no longer children of darkness, but children of light, that they would repent of their sins, come humbly on their face to the cross of Christ, receiving that free gift of salvation, which he and he alone can impart. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen and amen.